Hello, and welcome to the Don't Shop on Tuesday podcast. We're your hosts, Jacob and Barry, joined by Maxwell Ho. Today, we're going to be discussing why it's important for democratic and representative democracies to actually support and listen to the will of their voters and the consequences that that can have, not just in a sort of theoretical and idealistic sense, but in a practical sense for actual governance and the stability of democracy itself. So I actually wrote about this a few weeks ago on the Don't Shop on Tuesday weekly reminder email, talking about how a recent study was done sort of reviewing the votes around the European Union adopting their European Union constitution back in 2005. And then France held a referendum about joining the the EU and ratifying the constitution. And 55%, so a little bit lower admittedly than our 60, but 55%, a strong majority, rejected the EU constitution. And it was with over 70% participation rate, so the highest of any referendum in the previous decade, I think. And despite that, the government decided to basically ignore the will of the people, keep pushing forward, and then several years later ended up implementing and voting on the Lisbon Treaty without any sort of input or reassessment based upon the will of the voters. And then this study sort of took a look at what happened in the aftermath and how that affected different constituents' participation in in democracy and in the overall process. And they found that there was actually quite a bit of deleterious effect here. There were three different expressions of voter disillusionment with the political process. The first being that there was lower turnout, which they called passive disengagement. The second was that there was a higher instance of people actually showing up to vote, but then leaving blank votes in certain situations, which they called active disengagement. And then third, they found that there were increased vote shares in anti-system parties. So especially we can see recently in the rise of things like the far right you know, movement has grown significantly in the right wing and the support for those parties has grown over time, tracked quite well with the ignoring of these referendums. So we can see that there's some actual real world consequences that can come uh, about from, from happening that. It's not just a theory. And you can see France rising up time and time again, where the people are very um, united in their protest. The most recent one was a young man was killed by the police. And they are, they are protesting, and the government is so concerned that there won't be fireworks for Bastille Day. They just don't want anyone having that type of, I won't say weapon, but that dangerous element in their in their possession. So they have canceled fireworks for Bastille Day. But think of all the times that that scenario happened here. But here, the country rose up in aggregate, in huge, huge numbers. And and France's protests don't don't manifest any any evidence of slowing down or getting smaller. Yeah, which is the French definitely do know how to protest. They know how to uh, you know they 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 have a long history of letting it be known when they dislike their government activity up through and including, you know, with uh, monarchy. One of the interesting things about this was this was a very granular. So you you can get very large scale sort of net national viewpoint, but this study also looked at 36,000 different French communes and municipalities and tried to track 
and do correlations around the actual strength of rejection of the vote and then tracking how that compared to those three different types of, you know, sort of dissatisfaction with the government, the active, passive, the active and passive disengagements, and then the increase of fringe uh, party support. And they found that, in fact, it was correlated that the stronger the municipality had had in terms of rejecting the EU referendum, we found that, indeed, those scenario, those places had had the most uptick in terms of, you know, blank votes. They saw the lowest voter participation. And then in subsequent elections, you know, continuing to grow, we found that those are the areas which were the most fertile ground for sort of reactionary politics to take hold. And what was somewhat scary about this was that they found that the types of disengagement, actually, they spiked right after ignoring the referendum. But then over time, those waned somewhat. You could still definitely see the effects, right, where more people, you know, there's there's a higher level of non-participation than there used to be. But that trebled at the beginning and slowly tapered off. Interestingly, they found that the inverse actually happened with support for reactionary and fringe parties, was that over time, each election cycle, that support actually grew. And so this is very concerning to a certain degree, is that it looks like, you know, at least in France, what they're finding was that they're, the initial ignoring of voters causes disengagement. But then over time, that seems to then sort of calcify into and become, you know, a more sort of souring into, you know, a, a much, much more bitter form of politics that is looking to just destroy the system that they had instead. People. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, is this like basically people becoming like jaded and then like kind of turning on the system in a way over time? Is this what you're kind of saying? I think it's hopelessness. Mm -hmm. I think it's anger. People want to be heard. People want to be represented. And they made it very clear. The people of France made it very clear what they thought. And they were totally ignored, which is happening here, by the way. And I... It could be ennui, it could be being jaded, but I see it as fury. I see it as, you know, you're not listening to us. You know, what what avenues do we have? Yeah, I the the article in and of itself didn't go into trying to, didn't have the data to try to parse that sort of thing, because I don't think they did long-scale interviews and stuff like that. I do interpret it, as you were saying, to some extent, as you get disillusionment and then that can either, you know, sort of bifurcate into total disengagement or, as Barry was saying, can go into sort of anger and bitterness. And I think that those, those aren't mutually exclusive routes. You can, you can interweave in between the two. I suspect that partially what's happening is you get a lot of disengagement at first and then as things continue to and people get more and more fed up that if they then decide to ever re-engage in politics, that their avenue towards re-engagement is probably through, you know, some sort of trying to get back at or eliminate the system that they feel like isn't representing them. And as Barry said, I think you can see that in our own politics, that this has been happening as well, right? In France, we see that in the last series of elections, the reactionary, nearly fascist party came, you know, 
close. I think they came in second, maybe, right, in terms of they received over 20% of the vote, and nobody in France receives even close to 50% of the vote, right? So I think the top part, I think that the top party is, you know, received something like 30%, maybe, and then the follow-up party, you know, in third was 19 or something like that. So we can see that there's definitely an increase in this disaffection. And we could see that happening in the United States as well, right? Where we see that the center didn't hold in 2016. We see that after these sorts of issues that when the will of the people and sort of the desires for change in productive ways that the, that the people look to the government for amelioration of their problems through addressing, you know, actual issues. And when the government ignores that, you know, you end up with some very nasty, you know, reactions from people where they're willing to, you know, to use the phrase, throw the baby out with the bathwater here, where they're like, well, you know, if I'm not going to get what I want, I'm going to get rid of all of you and everything that you sort of have cloaked yourself into support of liberalism, of multiculturalism, of pluralism, that that often just gets lumped in with you and just thrown out. And so, yeah, you need you need to it's, it's important to actually listen to people. I think it's a balancing act. I mean, it's clearly people in power want a certain level of dis- parties. They purge election rolls. They they gerrymander to create safe districts for certain parties that there. I mean, there are areas like take Wisconsin, which has a majority Democratic voting, but the legislature is controlled by the by the Republicans because of gerrymandering. There are these safe seats, so they they eliminate early voting, or they take it away. There, uh, a lot of black churches have souls to the polls, where after services, they would have run buses to the polls, which many states took away Sunday voting as, a, I feel, a direct response. Well, I didn't know that. That's something that's new to me entirely. Oh, it is a concerted effort, but I feel like any poison, like chemotherapy or arsenic, any poison, at some point, you you kill the body. So they want to control, they want to come in and, and have the power. But when you get to a point where people feel totally disengaged, well, then you have too much poison in the water. You have too much people saying it's no use. I mean, I I get frustrated and angry literally every day. I mean, and I'm not ADHD, but look over here. This is happening. Look what the Supreme Court did today. Look what the Congress did. Look what Biden promised is not doing. So I live in a fairly safe, lovely area. I, you know, I don't, I mean, I'm not facing pressing problems except, of course, the environment and water and everything else. And I feel that I'm not being heard. Can you imagine how people that, are are diminished even slightly by by the public dialogue how they feel and so to me this is just evil gone too gone too far yes let's suppress the vote yes let's control it and then it just it just ran out of ran out of control and you get angry people and yeah. even on even the republicans with qAnon and these theories they're looking for some sort of safe Mythal, you know, safe harbor. You know, JFK Jr. is coming back, and with Trump, he's going to do this, that, and the other thing. People believe this, and it just—it's a safe place because, on all levels, people feel they're not 
being represented. Yeah, I think powerlessness in general, you know, helplessness can lead to, you know, a lot of ugly sort of reactions, both from the powerful and from the powerless. This, as Barry's pointing out, a sort of feature of definitely in America, but just democracies, modern democracies at large, is that whereas we've seen more sort of politicians become their own sort of class and professional politicians as a sort of lifelong (laughs) career that one steps into, that we see this catering towards political elites and an attempt to sort of get the imprimatur of the people, but to actually sidestep their desires and figure out how to, you know, get the people sort of on board, but not really have to listen to them and actually do whatever it is that the political elites want to do. As we've talked about many times, you know, there's a Stanford study in America that shows that this process is very far along uh, in America since the 19th. There is no correlation whatsoever between the bottom 90% uh, of Americans and what they poll in terms of issues and what they want the government to do. But there is a very strong correlation between the top 1%, especially high-level donors, and what their poll positions on policies are and what government actually ends up enacting. If those, if they want it, the government, get, the government enacts it. If they don't, the government blocks it. And it's sort of irrelevant what the people want. Or the Supreme Court steps in and handles it. Right, well, that's it. another... That's just another you know, branch of this process of, of, of insulating elites from actual democratic, pro- democratic processes. There, uh, there is a billionaire, and there, Elizabeth Warren proposed a, a wealth tax, and it's really arduous. It doesn't kick into the first 50 million, and then it's real. I'm being sarcastic, people can't see me. And, and then it's a very small, very small tax moving forward on billionaires. It hasn't been enacted. I can't imagine it being enacted by this Congress, but there's a billionaire already pressing to have it struck down by the court. So you're going to have something struck down preemptively by the court of legislation that hasn't occurred yet. And I was talking to you both earlier. I have a degree in political science and a master's in public policy analysis. I've worked on all three levels of government, and there's no correlation between academic and reality. You know, what I learned as a political science as a political science student and as and in my master's, it's not, you know, it's pretty, it's nice, and it's not happening here. People they're not elected. They're not public servants. They're not serving the public. They are. And, and when people come to me and say, well, you know, this person's good and that person's good. And I say, without question, there are good people being elected. But one of the most pernicious aspects is the system itself. It's been called the sausage maker. You know, if you if you like sausage, don't watch and you like laws, don't watch either being made. And the the system itself, the process itself is more debilitating and, and, and problematic than lobbyists, than corrupt politicians, because it is, it is a tough road to hoe. Now, unfortunately, Mitch McConnell understands the process and has mastered it. But prior to this Congress, they put Paul Ryan in, who had served in Congress for many, many years, as speaker, because the previous speaker said, I can't do it. I'm I'm out of here. And Paul Ryan couldn't control his caucus. He couldn't make the process work. 
All he could do was pass tax cuts for the wealthiest people primarily, which is like asking fish to swim in water. You know, Republicans, can you pass these tax credit, these tax cuts? Fish, can you stay in water? He couldn't master it. And he, he was always presented as this master wonk. And after a couple of years, he left. So the process itself, so I always say, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing the punchline or, or, or presenting the lead up front, is that we need good people in office, but true change comes from collective citizen action. And we, sh- we shouldn't be told, oh, you're upsetting the apple cart. We shouldn't be told that because look at the civil rights movement. They were told, no, 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 no. Look at the the, the rise of the feminists. No, 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 don't, don't upset the apple cart. And I think today the most vilified unfairly as as collective as as collective damage is the LBQ community, especially trans people, and people and they need we need to stand up, elected officials, the media need to stand up and say, stop, stop, you know, stop doing this. First of all, it's a distraction. We're not fixing inflation. We're not fixing the environment. We're not fixing, we're not making immigration more humane. We're not fixing your schools. We're not fixing your water. But oh, look over there, there's a trans person that is not governing, that is not managing the public space. And people need to stand up and say, all, everyone is a citizen. Now do your job and fix all these problems. This actually, I was going to break this up in a question, but I think you just set it up really well, just as a commentary, because often when I think about being like unrepresented by my government, I think about, and I'm as a trans person, like, you know, we still are fighting for, you know, rights in a lot of ways. And we've been having this attack on our rights by governments all around the country right now. And, you know, what I will hear, you know, people in office say is like, well, we can't focus on your rights right now. We have a lot of other people. We have all these other issues to focus on. How can we possibly, you know, represent your issue when we have to focus on these other issues? But but what you just said, Barry, is like spot on anyways, because they're actually not even focusing on those other issues to begin with. But oftentimes a what I think is a thing that government officials might come back with is like, well, we can't focus on your issue. We can't represent you because we have so much else to focus on. So, you know, like that's something I've heard. I just want to say two things in relation to that. You you cripple and destroy the trans community. People of color are next. Immigrants, Jews, women, people that are uh, mentally or physically challenged. It is it is it is a it is a gateway to 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 take from these marginalized or perceived as vulnerable communities. And if in terms of too much on their plate, there are two legislators, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobart, and they fought over who was the first person to put in a bill to impeach Biden. Now Whatever you think about Biden, he's not going to be impeached anytime soon. It was just performative, political, I don't want to say comedy, because there's some art to comedy. So they're fighting with each other over which person was the first one to introduce this useless, ridiculous, 
non-healing. I mean, the bill does nothing. It, I could see fighting over we have an idea about inflation or we have an idea about schools. Fight over that, not over performative. Yeah, the. I mean, I do think that, you know, we had the space opens up for all of this performative and culture narrative and the, the ability for culture narratives to, especially ones that are removed and, you know, it's sort of removed from often a lot of the sort of material conditions of people when the government doesn't actually address the sort of base, as they often call them, you know, like dinner table type issues here. And we can see sort of shades of this in America where at the beginning of his presidency, when Biden actually was looked like he was fulfilling and attempting to, you know, follow through with many of the more sort of progressive and material value sort of propositions around making people's lives better, improving their access, you know, to education, improving, you know, their healthcare, removing debt, all those sorts of things. At that point, he had actually quite a high, you know, overall, especially for modern presidencies, quite a high approval rating. And then as we've moved away from actually the government attempting to deal with these sorts of material issues, as the pandemic slipped away and we, and with it, the easy and opportunity to actually get Medicare for all, Right. As instead of, you know, as promises around dealing with the climate crisis, uh, you know, have faded and approval of various things like the Willow Project and, you know, various natural gas and fracking, you know, projects have actually been approved by the Biden administration, you know, that we see that his approval rating has begun to dip. And it's also, you know, a scenario where in the absence of the government stepping in to actually listen to the people and address the myriad of issues that every single week we talk about, that that leaves space in that vacuum of actually dealing with and taking on the hard task of governing and making, you know, a society that actually works for everyone. When, when you abandon sort of that task to the whims of whatever it is serving the political elite, then this opens up this whole sort of realm, or it increases the saliency anyway, of, you know, these culture war issues, which is basically a proxy for the powerful targeting various vulnerable and powerless, you know, or disempowered groups as a way to distract and give red meat to the people who are feeling deeply frustrated and disaffected by the fact that they feel like the government and their society isn't giving them what it promised. It's a major distraction. And with every blow, like Roe v. by overturning Roe v. Wade, there's so many related consequences. It's not just abortion, it's not just autonomy, it's women's health. It you know, it's it's women's mental health. It's women that that had cancer were refused treatment, women that had Deadly pregnancies weren't allowed to, to terminate them. So it's not about life. It is all performative. And when it's performative and it's culture issues, I, I, I heard a very interesting comment that the, with the, the trans issue, what, what the establishment has done to women is, is limitless in terms of bad things. They, but now they can say, all right, we took away your health care and we pay you less and 
all, you know, and most of you are teachers and we're going to pull books off your shelves and we're going to threaten you, your bathrooms are safe, which is not an issue. Or they're going to say the four, the four girls playing sports against a trans athlete, we got your back. So we are, we are behind women. And it's just a lie. It's just, it's just a lie because as someone who's gone into women's bathrooms my entire life, let me tell you, there's always a line. They're private stalls. And then women are crowded around the mirrors and the sinks. So nothing happens in a woman's room. So let me be your English speaking guide there. It is not an issue. And there are about 150 trans athletes in the country, college and, 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 and undergrad and less than that and kindergarten through, through 12th. And let me tell you something. My, pl- my son played sports. There's huge disparities in athletic prowess and it comes from many different places. And, um, Carmelo Anthony is, a Baltimorean, he just retired uh, from basketball, so I cite him. Can you imagine being in high school playing against uh, this superb athlete? And there's a trans wrestler right now who's male, who's defeated male, cis male athletes. Athletic prowess is tied to so many things. And if I may, you know, my son played every sport and when he was younger, I didn't care about who who won. I wanted him to have teamwork, and and athletic and, and grow. And I used to say, my son was always the best one on the team. So I don't have a dog in this race, but I would say to the coach, bring in the other children. Every child has to play, or they're not going to get any better. It's not about who wins. Yeah, certainly. I I would definitely agree with that in sports, although I do think it's important that we win (laughs) this overall (laughs) political fight here, right? And I think that, you know, we've been highlighting across these areas that what is deeply important is when the people speak, especially during things like referenda, where we have that happen, for instance, in Florida, where the referendum around trying to give people back their voting rights happens, and then the government's like, wow, we actually didn't want that to happen, so we're going to try to prevent that, right? That when we have any of these sorts of scenarios going on, that that leaves space for, you know, that that basically discredits the center, it discredits moderates, and the overall establishment ruling party. And then at that point, you know, there's a question of what people are going to do. And what we can see from the data in Europe and just even anecdotally in our own experiences is that if there isn't some sort of credible alternative or a good way for people to actually channel that frustration and disaffection into something positive, that the ideas that end up capturing them are often very ugly and frustrated and hateful. And so that's why things like Don't Shop on Tuesdays are so important, because It's really important to, one, know that you are part of the majority, know that your beliefs are shared by most people, and that when the gaslighting of the government occurs in not listening to you, that you should feel frustrated, but that the proper response there is to band together as people, to form community and stronger community, to recognize that that you might have a particular top issue that you feel like you're not being represented on, but that the panoply of these issues all together in aggregate is mostly shared and it's shared by a wide swath of people. And that if we work together proactively to actually get at the root 
of, you know, sort of this problem that money has and elites have managed to capture our democratic process, that we can reverse that sort of trend away from, you know, a sort of reactionary radicalism and disaffection of politics and actually use this as an opportunity to slough off the old sort of decrepit form of politics that has developed and instead work towards an actual democratic process and a democratic governance that represents all of us. And so that's what we're trying to do here at Don't Shop on Tuesday. In aggregate, we have more economic power together than the elites do. And we can effortlessly, elegantly, and safely demonstrate that. We have un power. Let's all work together. And until next time, Don't Shop on Tuesday. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at don'tshoponTuesday at gmail.com. You can find out more about the movement at don'tshoponTuesday.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash don'tshoponTuesday. And you can follow our Instagram at don'tshoponTuesday. I came, I was running a little late, and Jacob actually texted me, and I thought he was kidnapped. Because he had actually... That's the that's the cue on the show on like the murder mystery show yeah. when the person does the thing yeah. that they never do and then you know you gotta yeah. call the police. <laughs> oh no, they're they're they've been kidnapped. I know because they texted me. They never do that. <laughs> they never. They don't even respond to my texts.